I'm Alex. And I'm Harrison. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And on today's episode, we're talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So these episodes will have two parts to them. First, Harrison or I will talk a bit about what's going on behind the scenes of the film we're talking about. Uh, This can be a number of things. Film and animation history, history of the Walt Disney Company, Disney creative decisions, social movements at the time, uh, anything that helps put this film into context. Uh, Because I'm more interested in the old stuff and Harrison likes the switch to digital and like Eisner era kind of thing. I just really like complaining about Reaganomics and labor relations. So like it fits perfectly. Um, So I'm in charge of history pre-mid-1980s and he's taking on everything after that. Obviously there's a lot of history across the board and a lot of context for each chunk. So we'll help each other fill in the gaps where needed. Um, Harrison knows way more about nuts and bolts than I do. I'm, I feel like I'm learning more as I go through this. Okay, so that's the first part of each episode. The second part of the episodes is mostly discussion-based. Uh, Harrison and I will talk about what we thought worked and didn't work in the films, uh, while also incorporating some fun liberal arts school thematic analysis. Uh, with some help, of course, we've reached out to some friends across the globe to give us their own opinions on the films. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of perspectives, the two of us being white people raised in America can't really speak to. So we decided to reach out and get some help on that. And it's also interesting in that way to see, you know, how these different films are interpreted across the globe. Because, you know, one person, two people can see the same film and it just is, they have two different experiences watching it. Okay, so Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The Walt Disney Company's first feature-length animated film, and commonly referred to as the first feature-length animated film, which isn't necessarily true. The history of animation dates back to scientific inventions and theories of the 19th century, and clearly we could do like a whole podcast just on the history of animation. There's so much to talk about. But from what I've read, researchers believe the world's first animated feature film predated Snow White and the Seven Dwarves by 20 years. In 1917, Argentina released a 70-minute feature called El Postal, directed by Italian immigrants Quirino Cristiani and Federico Valle. Unfortunately, there's no surviving copy of it. But even so, eight or nine years later, Germany released The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which is, to date, the earliest surviving animated feature film. Um, what? Oh no, this is trivia that I don't know. (laughs) I only know little bits about Walt Disney as a man. I don't remember all that much about his childhood, but at some point he went and did some animating. I think he started off as a cartoonist is what I think. Walt Disney is an animator. Walt Disney is an artist. He is a creator. Um, He changed everything that people knew about filmmaking. Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, uh, and that was stolen from him. He, I know, did another job and would draw his like little Steamboat Willie cartoons, um, and then was like, I like this. He was a pioneer in the animation industry. I know him through the lens of somebody who has watched a lot of Disney movies, especially a lot of early Disney movies. My impression was that he was like, very involved in the first few. Walt Disney is the man who created Mickey Mouse. Creator of Mickey Mouse. The creator. 
creator behind uh, Mickey Mouse. With Mickey Mouse, like the ba- the big early days. Think of the, the statue in the center of Walt Disney World where he's holding hands with Mickey. It's like, oh, there's Mickey's dad. Characters like Mickey Mouse and and um, the hand who ultimately was behind the, the people who created movies like Snow White. He did a lot of good. He made animation a viable medium for widespread entertainment, but, you know, he's a complicated guy. He, um, is someone that I don't really admire, even though he achieved so much. Like, there are sometimes these fantastical men who do really amazing things who are not necessarily the best people. And unfortunately, as members of just the the viewing public who just see the movies, we don't really get a whole lot of that other side to him that, you know, get referenced in a whole lot of other um, media. Because everyone's perception of who Walt Disney is is entirely based on uh, the character he played for the public. So for me, it's interesting how so many other sources like to say Snow White was the first feature-length animated film. Um, And I feel like this is only this only contributes to this whole Disney first rhetoric um, that the company likes to, you know, push forward. Um, There's this whole idea that Disney is like the one author of like all Disney films. You know, people often assume that he was the one who was in the workroom drawing the cartoons himself, um, writing up all the storyboards, directing, doing everything. But in actuality, he was fairly disengaged from the animated process, especially after World War II. With the early stuff, he was a little more hands-on. A lot of people who worked for him like to say that he was almost a little too controlling, um, and he was very difficult to please. And he was even going to direct Snow White up until 1936, and at that point, he told David Hand to do it. But then as, you know, more films the studio began to produce, the less he had direct involvement in those films themselves. And a lot of people also like to think that Disney is the father of animation. Um, He's the one who created the whole art. But really, through my research, what I found is he made a specific type of animation the more mainstream or popular version of it. Back in the 1930s, there were multiple other studios, even in the United States, that were just as popular, if not more popular, than Walt Disney Animation. There's also the question as to whether or not Walt Disney actually is the creator of Mickey Mouse. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of scholars often say that it was actually Ub Iwerks, one of his business partners, that was the true creator of the mouse. So when talking about the history and context behind Snow White, it's also important to briefly note the attitudes towards animation during the late 1920s and early 1930s. By the time we reach 1928, which animation historians refer to as the golden age of cartoons, there's a divide across the world. Europeans believe animation is a form of high art. European animation was mostly avant-garde in style and experimentalist, and animators like to push the boundaries with abstract shapes and movements. There's even accounts of some European animators literally painting onto film as a way to just sort of explore the different possibilities with animation. So projects were elaborate and expensive. However, European animation didn't really take off until the 1950s. Now, in the United States, animation was mostly cheap cartoons at first. Shorts were created quickly and simply and were meant to be funny. Studios were more focused on the quantity of the output, but cartoons were popular. 
I would still say, though, that U.S. cartoons were a bit abstract as well. Uh, animators would purposefully make their cartoons move in outlandish ways, emphasizing this anti-realistic nature. You can see it in early cartoons like Betty Boop and other Fleischer Brother productions. But when Walt Disney Studios set out to make Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, creators purposefully strayed away from this. Up until this point, Disney shorts like Steamboat Willie and the Silly Symphonies followed in the mainstream style, but Disney specifically wanted to move towards a more realistic style of animation. He was worried the mainstream cartoony style did not carry the emotional range necessary for a feature-length film. You can see Disney testing these realistic animation techniques in the 1936 short The Old Mill, which I will say I watched while writing this whole thing up, and... I will say the animal movements are pretty spot on. There's this bit where like a bird is like trying to like flap the water off of him. That looked really, really, really well done. But they definitely tried to make the bird couples kiss like humans do, but like with beaks instead. And it was a little jarring to watch, not going to lie. And one thing I also noticed was that the facial expressions were very human as well. Um, and that's something that we'll get into more when we discuss Bambi. So this realism, this emotional believability, is referred to by Chris Pallant as Disney formalism. And for the purposes of time, we're going to go into this more in our next episode. So keep that in your head. Disney formalism, it's really important. Like I said before, U.S. cartoons during this time were made fairly cheap. Uh, they didn't have big budgets, but Disney went all in on Snow White. He completely depleted all the studio's money on the film, uh, even went so far as to show a Bank of America exec a version of the film in order to get another loan, and mortgaged his house, all to get more funding. The four-year production schedule went six times over the initial budget. Uh, Disney thought this was going to cost like $250,000, but it ended up costing him $1.5 million. And for perspective, that's equal to about $28 million today. Now, I don't really know much about the industry of animation today. So like Harrison, how does this compare? So the issue with accounting for inflation is that even with the adjustments, money back then still used to just go further because cost of living was way lower. And also Walt just didn't treat his animators very well. Um, but compared to other animation budgets by today's standards, it's still remarkably low. That $28 million is really low. Spider -ver Enter the Spider-Verse cost about $90 million. Trolls, the first movie, cost about $125 million. Moana is estimated to have cost about $150 million, but it's estimated because Disney notably doesn't officially like to reveal their budgets anymore, uh, so they tend to keep all that under wraps. That's interesting. Wonder when that started happening. I'm interested in that too, and we will return back to that in the 80s. Hey! Alright, so Disney makes this like huge financial gamble with Snow White. People thought it was a dumb idea, and before the film comes out, they're all calling Snow White Disney's folly. They think that this is just going to ruin him. Then, it hits the theaters. People love it. It makes $7.8 million in the box office. But it's not only a financial success. Snow White goes on to achieve wide critical acclaim. Walt got a cover spot on Time Magazine, Snow White was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score, and it got an honorary Oscar for Significant Screen Innovation. To this day, Snow White is on several American Film Institute lists. 
It's number 49 on the top 100 movies list, number 34 on the updated 10th anniversary top 100 movies list, number 19 on top 100 songs with the song Someday My Prince Will Come, number 10 for top 100 villains for The Evil Queen, and number one for the top 10 animated films of all time. So, with all that being said, do you think Snow White is a good film? Ah, what a good question. Is Snow White a good film? A good film? Good in, like, after you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, that was good, or good as in, like, what it's about. Um. <sighs> um. I mean, granted, I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know if I can actually answer that. Are we talking plot-wise? Are we talking animation? Um. Technically, yes. I mean, my 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 default is yes. Oh sure. Yes is what I I believe Snow White is a is a good film. Well, yes, I love Snow White. No. 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 I hate Snow White. Snow White's my least favorite film. It's just like it's too plain. At least I don't like it. I'm gonna say no. Well, I mean, good. I think it's an important film. <laughs> Is Snow White a good film? So I think there's a couple ways you could take this. One, is it a good film in terms of like production and technical quality, or and then is it a good term? Is it a good film in terms of the narrative it's telling and how well it does that? Because I have said I. I've said in my life that like movies are good for both of those reasons, sometimes mutually exclusively so. So I think if we want to like, I feel like we should start positively. <laughs> so this whole episode isn't just a, like us dunking on this thing, but like from a technical perspective, this movie's incredible. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. I, I literally, when I was writing down positive things, um, a lot of the things that caught my eye and a lot of the things that I really enjoyed were just like certain scenes of artistry. Like one of the scenes that I thought was beautiful was when the dwarves were like walking across the log and there's the sunset. And I don't know, I just looked at that and was like, dang, like that looks really, really good. Um, and then another part that kind of had a different effect, but I also thought was well done, was the kind of fever dream that Snow White has. When she, after the huntsman's like, go run away. And she's like, okay, runs into the forest. The trees are like, I think it was just like the, seeing the trees, the tree branches as fingers, like grabbing onto her was like, ooh, that's cool. Like, that looks really cool. Also elicited like, like a nostalgic fear. Like I remembered watching that as a kid and being like, yikes. Like, you know, just like being scared. But, like, I wasn't necessarily scared in the moment. It was just, like, remembering that emotion tied to that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, inter going back to the, the, the dwarves cr crossing the, the log with the sunset and everything, there's obviously, like, this it holds true for a lot of animation, but, like, there is a really painterly quality to a lot of the shots in this to the point that, like, you could pretty much take any still from this and, tr and like put it in a gallery, you know, yeah. like it's, it's so well assembled and the comp, the composition is just so flawless 
but like that kind of goes back to the fact that this was such an unproven thing that Walton the animators had to put their best best foot forward literally some of these frames and cells of animation are some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen it's kind of wild to think that this was so early on in animation history Mm -hmm. and I think it it is just because of the the cell style of animation you know that just the ability like they're painting panes of depth of field so they are literally painting portraits and then like shooting over it which I think is why it just looks so amazing you know like in like well, picture like every scene is picturesque right and i think another thing that assists the aesthetic and the visual of this movie is the fact is the the animation itself like it's extremely fluid <laughs> to a to a point that i was a little off put uh in certain places but the way all of these characters are animated feels very silent era, like early 1900s film, like all of Snow White's movements and the Prince especially. Um, it feels very pantomime. Like you could take out the audio track for pretty much every scene and still be able to follow what's going on, which is absolutely a positive in this movie's favor. It's funny you mentioned that because two of the things that I just thought were kind of odd <laughs> were like, you know, Snow White, like this whole thing she does where she has like her hands under her chin and she like almost does like the stretch kind of a move. Like that kind of seems to be her signature move. And then on like a kind of a funny note, when the prince at the very end like finds her in the coffin, and he literally, he walks past the dwarves, he like sticks out his toe and opens his arms like I am here <laughs> and I was like I saw that and had to pause it because I was laughing because it was just like like you said like it, the 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 physicality of the characters is so expressive um it's almost it goes like I know like when they were making this film and like the technique and the artistry of it they wanted to it to be real like they wanted to capture real life as much as possible you know just compared to usual cartoons you know didn't want to do like the big eyes and like the exaggerated features um but it, it, then it's just funny when you see these moments and you're like okay no one would just go out and like stick their toe out and like fling open their arms as they hit a note you know listen i i wouldn't say nobody in my more dramatic moments i act like that so it's like I get it. I also do know, fun fact, that on the Disney lot in Burbank here, um, there's there's different buildings, and one of the the main building where like the CEO sits and like all the management people, um, it's called Team Disney, and there's the Seven Dwarves like holding up the pillars. Mm -hmm. um the roof you can look it up it makes more sense if you like see a visual but like they're holding up so like they're sculptured into the building and they're in there because disney almost never became a company because they almost fell into bankruptcy had snow white not been as successful so they have the the um dwarves holding up the building as a symbol of them holding up the company that's symbolic. Yeah. <laughs> oh my so this is the point in the episodes where we'll include bits and pieces from different interviews that we've done with guests to help separate our discussion. 
So we're going to start with Olivia. My name is Olivia Fitzgerald. Um, I want a disclaimer and just say that I do not reflect the views of any past employers, any future employers. I'm not a representation of Disney or their views or anything like that. Just in just in case, you know, any legal issues. Of course. Um, I'm just I'm speaking as me and my own opinions um, because who knows where I'm going to land. Uh, I work in entertainment in uh, some L.A. based and I've worked at previously at Warner Brothers in a writer's room and I've worked in at Disney and various desks. So I've worked at Disney TV. I worked at Disney Freeform. I worked at ABC seven. Um, and so, uh, I know a lot of people in the industry, a lot of people in the animation industry. So, but I'm still fairly green, so I still don't know a whole lot. I'm still learning as much as possible, but hopefully I can provide some insight of people who like want to know what it's like to actually work in these studios or be on the lot or something like that. She definitely has one of the more positive takes on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It's, it's very iconic for the time period. Mm-hmm. You have to know that you know the animation style at the time was pretty revolutionary um i don't know i think it's i think it's great i think it's solid i don't gravitate towards it she's definitely my least favorite princess but thinking of like the time of it i don't know for what it was in 1937 yeah it's a good film yes However, when if you think about it, obviously by today's standards, it wouldn't add up. But, like, when you think about it, like, it, would it be, if you were to watch it today, do you think it would hold your attention as much as something like a Wreck-It Ralph or maybe like even a Moana? Like if it was remade? No, like, if you went back to it now, like, if you went on Disney Plus today and you pulled up the movie and you watched it. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think you. I think you would watch it with the nostalgic goggles on, being like, "This is not made in this time frame," so you have to understand the context of it and watching it for the classic intent. Versus, let's analyze this film as if it came out in twenty twenty mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, so maybe I don't know. Um, my name is Lindsay Bolden, and I am a 24-year-old Tulsa native, (laughs) um, and I work in TV production for a living, and I guess I've always been into, like, entertainment, stuff like animation, um, storytelling, stuff like that. Like, from a really young age, I was always, like, writing stupid stories down and like journals and stuff like that like stuff like that has always been very much a draw for me I think once upon a time I wanted to be an author (laughs) you know as somebody who watched it as a child um I think that and and as somebody who has not revisited that movie in a long time I should say it I believe that it was a good film for what it was it was very um revolutionary in the fact that i do i believe it was the first technicolor film to come out of the 1930s which was a big deal at the time 
Um, I think that the animation is very beautiful. Um, the the backgrounds on the and and it's old style animation. This is original, like hand drawn. Like the amount of time and effort and artistic ability it takes to make that movie, especially back then, I think is very impressive. So as a work of um, looking at a, at it as a work of art, it's very good. But I think that you know. In terms of what we think of now as a good movie, I don't know if it quite makes that list. I think in term, like if you look at it as a work of art, um, just from the style of animation, not necessarily the storyline or the story just in and of itself, like the script, um, but looking at the animation, it, it is a good movie. Other than that, I think that there are, there are better movies out there. <laughs> away from the, the technical stuff. Well, I want to add one more thing before we yeah, go for head south. This is just something I enjoyed, um, but there's just like a certain level of drama and romanticism to the music, I thought, that yeah. really sold it. Um, I A long time ago, I was writing a story and like it was like a fairy tale story and so i listened to the disney pandora station back when pandora was all the rage and accidentally listened to the entire snow white soundtrack so it was interesting like watching it and then hearing the thematic like the music themes throughout like that was just a lot more prevalent um but i also like to an extent enjoyed the pairing of music to movement you know you see it from like the very start like you know the orchestra comes in it's really loud you see the slate snow white and then it fades and comes back up with like the swell of the music as well like and that just kind of i think continues throughout the whole movie and for me that made scenes like them washing in the tub for like 10 minutes or however long that was more bearable (laughs) because I was like at least there's something happening right now but that's a whole bit that I want to go into later um you know like I feel like if it wasn't as well I probably those scenes wouldn't exist if the music isn't as such but um definitely like it ties to the silly symphonies that happened that Disney produced before Snow White, you know, because that was when they were really tying, you know, every, all the sound to all the movement. And you even see it in, you know, like Steamboat Willie is an example. I mean, that also kind of links up back to the the silent movies comparison I've been drawing, considering that like uh, before before the dawn of sync sound the way you would get the way you could get a lot of the emotional impact from movies like that is from the musical cues musical music does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of emotion even now um so that prevalence and marriage of the two is like super important just to the form of animation and what disney animation was at the time and continues to be so moving away from the actual just pure discussion of the tech and production we need to talk about the actual narrative and structural components of this movie i have so many questions oh my um gosh. <laughs> i have a question primarily 
did this movie need to be 90 minutes? I don't think it did. I think it was 90 minutes because Walt Disney decided he wanted to make the quote-unquote first feature-length animated film, which we learn now isn't actually the first feature-length animated film if you look back in animation history. Um, But that's what he, you know, that was his goal. And I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah, to answer my own question, it had to be 90 minutes because Walt wanted to prove a point. Exactly. In terms of narrative structure, it didn't have to be 90 minutes. It didn't. No. Like, I think my, my my point of like, oh man, there's still more of this movie left was about an hour in where it was like, okay, Snow White is like here with the dwarves and now they're just dancing. Like, the, I, there's no real character progression at that point. They're just dancing to have a good time. And I'm like, okay, yeah, here's the, here's the Silly Symphony stuff. Here's like the legacy of Steamboat Willie and all the shorts that came before this. It's like, okay, yeah, this is what they're known for doing. So of course this is going to be a prevalent part in it. And then like all the actual narrative structure stuff was the experimentation, which is very weird to think about considering the actual narrative beats of this are fairly short, fairly rudimentary and not exactly experimental by any stretch of the imagination by modern standards. Off mic, you mentioned you had some observations about labor and, uh, sexuality stuff that you wanted to bring up so i'm interested to hear what you have to say 100 percent. so well because i was watching it trying to watch it like in a more analytical way you know thinking about themes that i saw and you're at the stick with me for a little bit of this because i'm just going to kind of go over like what i noticed in the order that i noticed it and then draw a conclusion okay. at the end okay so the first thing that i and I want to preface this by saying I'm currently taking a little bit of time off of work. (laughs) And usually, you know, on those first couple days, you're really tired and you just don't want to be doing work. Um, So that's definitely coloring this, um, (laughs) this interpretation. But the first thing I noticed was, okay, so like during the opening bit with the storybook, you know, Disney, they lay out, you know, Snow White works as a scullery maid which means she's basically like a servant in the house. Which sucks if you're a princess and then, you know, you gotta, like, be treated like that, which will probably go into class things, which I know you want to talk about. But what I noticed then was she's literally scrubbing the steps outside singing and has, like, the most sunny disposition. Like, she is not taking her... um, She's not taking her situation and letting that, like, sour her or, like, make her bitter, but that's seen in a positive way. Like, this whole mentality of, like, you get what you get and you got to make the most of it kind of a thing, which, like, to an extent, you know, yes, but then to another extent, that can be exploited. So, I thought that was interesting. But then, what we go into is, um, and you might have to, like, this was just me noticing things, but... There's a lot, like, the, at least two of the songs that follow when Snow White leaves are songs that people sing while they're working. So we have Whistle While You Work, which is Snow White as she's cleaning the, the cottage. Again, what we see is this example of someone working 
you know, with a cheery disposition, you know, just is happy to be there. Like the whole time she's smiling, you know, and it's not like she looks around and she's like, this place is gross. Um, and it's not like she sees it in a negative way. She sees it and she's like, well, it looks like we're just going to clean. And it's not like my problem, but I'm still going to clean and I'm going to be happy about cleaning. That just make you know, it's like doing that work that isn't even work she has to do. And then the song is very cheery and she's like, you know, you can just get through work while whistling and it's fine. And then we go to um, the dwarves working in the mine and they're singing their song. Um, I don't know what it's called, but it's the like the million diamond shine, that one. And if you notice there, all the dwarves are happy to be working too. They're singing while they're working and they're really like... The only time someone is mad is Doc, and that's when Dopey isn't doing his job effectively. It's when Dopey puts the diamonds in his eyes and is goofing off and playing, and Doc's like gets upset because he's like, no, you need to be working. Like, what are you doing? Also, just the fact that they were working while singing, there's like a slavery line there, <laughs> which yeah. what I thought of when I first saw it. I was like, oh lovely like I'm glad we're drawing this comparison and you can again like you know more about that um so I'd rather you explain because I know you could say it more succinctly but that was my my labor observations okay so yeah I you're definitely onto something but for I want to break apart the two types of labor because one is domestic and one is industrial labor right so let's let's tackle snow white and the industrial stuff first so in domestic or in the domestic labor first because i think that's less about labor than it is about gender that was another part of it. Yeah. so snow white is all of the work she's seen as doing is gendered it is housework it is cleaning and she is thoroughly satisfied with everything she's doing because that is essentially this is not what I believe. This is what I know about Walt Disney and the era this was made. Please do not attack me on Twitter. Snow White is positioned as the ideal woman throughout this entire thing in terms of beauty and also in terms of labor and uh, the domestic role. She is thoroughly happy working and cleaning in a domestic sphere with little to no compensation to the point that she inserts herself into an unfamiliar unfamiliar domestic setting and shapes it it shapes it into her notion of what an ideal home is supposed to be. I'll come back to that in a minute because there's some class stuff going on in there as well. On the other hand, we've got the the dwarves working in the mine and seemingly not for their own benefit. Like we see them working in the mine, we see them getting all these gems and jewels they don't take any of it they don't they don't benefit from the fruits of their labor and we they don't take see all them of, getting compensated for it either exactly they take all of they take all the value that they produce shove it in a bag toss it in a closet presumably to come be retrieved by some other high foreman higher up but we don't see where that wealth goes knowing what i know about walt disney the dirty rotten capitalist that he is your boy out there really likes to take the va the fruit of other people's labor and claim it has his own. 
and they the dwarves are also positioned as like the ideal capitalist workforce they show up to work they love it they're compensated in a way that we don't see i'm going to assume they're co- they're compensated in some manner because they have a house um and all of the wealth they produce is shunted away and presumably up the capitalist ladder so i think it's interesting that both the forms of labor we do see are positioned as ideal well i was gonna add i remembered when you were going into it but like especially with snow white specifically like the whole point is that by the end all her dreams quote-unquote came true so she like quote gets what she wants because it's almost like she's rewarded for how she like dealt with the circumstances given to her which to me has like more of like that kind of gives it like one of those like moral religious undertones which again very prevalent during this time right and because she was so pure she 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 was essentially protected from death by the man My name is Kaylee Spielbush. I'm currently a junior at the University of Tulsa, majoring in creative writing and media studies as my minor. I'm from Ponca City, Oklahoma, where I'm currently quarantined. And um, obviously I'm passionate about writing as it's my major, also media, like I love music and like a lot of my media is like video game related too so i think it'd be cool in the future like transfer my writing over into media and just do things with that my career that'd be cool what kind of video games do you like like rpgs the role-playing ones (laughs) (laughs) want to give specifics dragon age mass effect the witcher uh i've played fallout 4 i've played a lot i've got a lot Okay, so more Western RPG instead of JRPG. I can play yeah. with that. Kaylee agreed with Lindsay and Olivia to an extent, but also picked up on the gendered labor portrayal that Harrison noticed. Yeah, I would say it's a good film. Like, it's the classic princess story of, like, kind of rags to riches in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's just, I guess I don't, my problem now as I'm older, I see how it portrays things like women and what about its portrayal of women are you like not jazzed about it just shows like snow white specifically it's like her worth is through her ability to clean and care for the dwarfs the men in the movie and like she relies on the prince to come save her even though it wasn't like he was seeking her but it's the only way she got out of the death situation she was in and it's just it doesn't show women as like powerful and independent i feel like uh well hi i'm tasman i am a book blogger um and a major disney fanatic so thank you so much for having me um i am 22 i live in london and i know i Alex from when she studied in London. I haven't watched it in a while. I watched it a few years ago. Um, the animation is absolutely beautiful because it was all hand drawn back then. The characters, I mean, it's it's very misogynistic in terms of you know the lady staying at home and cleaning everything. Um, but it's in terms of like the story arc, 
it's I I enjoy it as a piece of art, not as what it's not the morals that it's trying to say. Because <laughs> um, what, wanting to kill someone else because they're prettier than you not a really good reason to to commit murder in my opinion no Mm, agree to disagree (laughs) (laughs) so um so basically your appreciation of snow white is for like the technical mastery and the artistry of it more so than the plot and the morals yes also i'm i'm a massive fan of fairy tales Mm -hmm. and i recently reread all of Aesop's Fables, I've read Grimm's Fairy Tales multiple times, and I have a love for the the old fairy tale, like the original fairy tales, or as original as they can be, of course, because they're all spoken words to begin with, and also new interpretations of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's using like an adult brain going, well, it was written a few hundred years ago, and we don't think that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, be like a little outdated, but you're. It seems yeah. like you're able to recognize that, but still find mm. enjoyment out of these media artifacts. Yeah, I think. Um, it's, I mean, most prevalently recently, the whole Harry Potter J.K. Rowling thing. I am not going to be buying any more Harry Potter products. I'm not going to be buying any of the new books or anything because I don't want to be supporting her. I still love Harry Potter. As, as fiction in my heart and in my soul and I'll probably reread the books in the future I do believe in being able to separate the art from the artist but in this day and age when they're still alive it's very hard to to not financially support the artist also also on top of that while we're talking since we're talking about like Snow White as like the ideal female throughout this whole thing, when when she gets through the forest and she's scared and she's crying, and all the animals come out and she turns it off like that, she compartmentalizes that trauma incredibly well. Props to you for knowing how to deal with that. But my problem with that comes from what she te- what she tells like the woodland creatures. She's like, "I'm sorry, I made such a fuss." I won't do that again. Like, excuse you, you almost got murdered. You got traumatized by a spooky forest. Those trees looked real assaulty. Like, the way they're grabbing at her, it's extremely, extremely coded as, like, assault. Um, and for you to, and for her to turn around and be like, I'm ever so sorry for causing such a fuss. Like, Not only that, on terms of assault, but they very specifically chose the huntsman to have a certain length knife and he stands above her as she's cowering on the ground and he holds it up you know which to me also kind of gave like rape imagery as well right. because, not to mention like, the leering you're... eyes everywhere and like and then I want to add she's still in a house of seven men they're still men but because because they're not human and because they're physically coded as old it's like it makes okay the fact that there was seven of them staring at her while she was sleeping which honestly for me was one of the creepiest parts of the movie when they're all just like she's asleep on the bed and they're just looking at her and they're like oh she's so pretty wow like (laughs) you're just like yeah (laughs) i mean that's not even mentioning the fact that like the resolution of this film is 
the prince rolling up on this presumably dead woman to just make out with her. Which is, um, a lot, shall we say? I mean, it goes with, like, grim fairy tale lore. I mean, that's that's fair, yeah, but uh, that doesn't excuse it. Still no, gross. it doesn't at all. There was also something else that really stuck out to me. And that was the relationship between Snow White and Grumpy. Yeah! Which I thought was interesting. Because there's, I feel like there's a lot that I was looking into. So, like... Gosh, where do I even begin? Because... Okay, for one, he's like, women have all their, like, evil wiles or whatever it was. And then they're like, what is that? And he goes, I don't know. And you're like, which again, like, codes him as this, like, non-sexual, therefore harmless entity, right? Um, Grumpy, from the outset, doesn't like Snow White because she is a woman. She is the image and the definition of femininity, He is the, and therefore he is like the toxic masculine who's like everything about women and femininity is bad. Like it makes you less of a man, right? Which is where I think his frustrations lie for the most part. Grumpy wouldn't wear a mask if he went out to go get groceries. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Okay, so he doesn't like her from the start. One th- so there's two kind of paths I want to go on. The first one is Snow White and how she responds to it. So one, it kind of made me a little like it was interesting how she when she was praying again, religion, she was like, please just make Grumpy like me. Like, please do that. And it's like, OK, the fact that he doesn't like you has nothing to do with you. Like, just move on. Like, it's fine. The fact that she decided to respond in that with like that kind way. While a bit admirable, you're also like, also stand up for yourself. Like, his behavior is dumb. It's interesting how, though, she, I felt like, and you can disagree, she almost used her sexuality as a way to, like, not manipulate him, but, like, change his mind. I think she was very aware that, like, oh, if I kiss him on the forehead, like, That'll make everything better. See, for her to use her sexuality, she has to have some to begin with. I feel like there's something to it, though. Like, I feel that she very like. I don't know. When I was watching it, I felt like she was very knowingly like, "All right, I'm gonna kiss you on the head," and then like he runs into stuff, and she's like, "That could also just be me like mm-hmm. wanting that." But then like you know, she just waves and she's like, "Bye." And, of course, you could just see that as being, like, super sweet and childlike and innocent. In my head, I thought, like, she kind of knew what she was doing. I mean, that... mm, To me, it read more maternalistic. Considering she rolls in and she's like, I'm going to take care of all these guys. I'm going to take care of all these dwarves. It's fine. I got this. I'm the mom. I will fulfill the domestic female role, which is either partner or mother. Uh, And since she comes down, she kind of slots right in and is like, I'm going to take care of all the housework. I am your mother, which again, keeps the, keeps them as being non-sexual entities the whole time. That's fair. Yeah. And like, I think the issue, the issue I have more with Grumpy and her relationship is that it essentially posits that she does. 
she does nothing really to want to like change his mind. She doesn't change her behavior, nor should nor should she. This is not me saying she should, but if she if she cares so much about Grumpy liking her, it would logically follow that she would take some steps to meet him halfway. But she doesn't. She doesn't change anything about her. But by the end of it, he's come around on her. So the way I read it is like, hey, ladies, just be the don't bother changing anything about yourself unless, of course, you are not like the ideal domestic female, in which case that's the only way to get men to like you. They'll come around eventually if you're just the perfect motherly figure. See, I read that more as like I just see him in the wrong for the most part, because I think he has some sort of issue and he's taking it out on her like even okay so in the scene where they're like washing their hands and he's like making fun of them for washing their hands again grumpy would not be wearing a mask to go get groceries he wouldn't <laughs> probably even be like washing his hands more than usual which yeah. is like never you know because for some reason like that idea of paying attention to your appearance or like you know like caring about like being hygienic even because women are in charge of cleaning like therefore if a man were to do that he becomes less of a man i also want to clarify i i don't see this as her being in the wrong at all grumpy's the one with the issues it's grumpy's problem for not for not just being like and eh, she is who she is and she's being nice enough i guess i'll come around the fact that like i'm reading it less of like Knowing Walt Disney's opinions on women and minorities colors my read on this a whole bunch. So it's less me saying that, like, this is how I read it. And I'm like, this is how Disney Animation chose to present this. I don't even know if there's an evil stepmother in Snow White. Like, I don't remember the story, honestly, even well enough to know. I know there's, there's like, an evil lady and she has an apple or... Is that Sleeping Beauty? I don't know. No, that's Snow White. That's Snow White. Okay, good. Yes, great. Um, there's an apple. But what happens when Snow White eats the apple? Doesn't she fall asleep? Is this why I'm, this is why I'm getting confused with Sleeping Beauty. So, Aaron obviously didn't have the best memory of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but he says that was probably due to the fact that he was largely disengaged from the movie when he was watching it as a child. My name is Aaron Krusniak. I am living in Michigan right now. I am from Missouri originally. We went to college together. Woo! To you, class of 2019. Go Golden Hurricane. Um... Yeah, I, uh, I'm studying urban planning here at the University of Michigan, working on my master's degree. Uh, one year through it so far and uh, real excited to be here today. Thanks for having me on. The last time that I saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was probably at least 15 years ago. So I'm working on like faulty memories here, but it's not that entertaining in my mind, in my opinion. But like Snow White, I remember just like not really clicking with me as a kid. Like she's She's, like, too good of a character, almost. Like, she's very sweet and pure and innocent, which I guess is that is meant to be her character. But she's just, like, not... She wasn't that interesting or engaging. So, to, like, to bring it to present day, like, now, looking back on that movie 
and judging it maybe more by today's standards, I would say like, hey, that's that's a pretty, uh, I don't know, sexist might be too harsh, but I don't feel like th- like that's not missing the mark either. Like that, there's this character and like really her only goal in life is to find like love, and she doesn't really do that much. She just like she she gets cursed and then she gets kissed and like there are some dwarves in between and I don't know I just I don't it doesn't resonate with me I don't think it's good that's my story and I'm sticking to it my name is Lindsay Durbin I'm from St. Louis and I'm currently a software developer for a bank and I'm just building some apps for their internal use uh, I really enjoy watching movies and TV shows, uh, mostly TV shows, but I'm trying to do this new thing this year where I watch a movie for every day of the year, so I'm at about 15, so I'm a little bit behind, but it's giving me a chance to watch movies that I should have watched or things that are considered classics and I never sat down and took the time to watch. Um, outside of work, I enjoy playing video games and reading books and playing soccer. So we have another Lindsay on the podcast. We'll refer to her as Lindsay D. Lindsay D is another guest that really didn't like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but not in the same way Aaron didn't like the movie. I did not like her, the way she was drawn at either. Like, I did not like the whole white as snow, lips as red as blood, black as hair black as ebony thing I don't I never liked it and she also was so timid and quiet that I never enjoyed listening to her talk (laughs) it was it always rubbed me the wrong way and I hated that the most interaction she had with her prince was him spying on her at the well and then him kissing her later on and I, I never liked that I think that I could never hear the lack of a backbone that Snow White really had. Like, she just never had much to her, which was disappointing. It was a few years ago that I was reading um, about basically that he, he bought the voice of uh, the actress who played Snow White. And so she was never allowed to do anything else. And that's that's pretty terrible. You know, it's I know apparently she was paid a lot of money at the time, you know, and I think I saw an interview where she was being very professional about it, but it's you know, that's the kind of evil <laughs> that his movies are like speaking out against and at the same time, you know, he wants to, you know, he was like, you know, I, I searched long and wide for this voice and, you know, so he's, you know, and he captured it. And, but just, to, but to make sure that Snow White is so singular, to make sure that Snow White is um, so far removed from anything else that anybody can ever do, you, I own you. So this is S.C. King. I'm a, a filmmaker, you know, aspiring filmmaker from... Uh, Tulsa. I've lived here uh, most of my life. Went to school, college here, you know, dropped out of college here, <laughs> joined a band, uh, started working on making short films. I'm currently working on a different 
project right now. It's a sci-fi show called 300 Days to Mars that uh, I built a spaceship into my closet and I found a way to be able to film with other creatives um, remotely so that even if we were all we were all quarantined, everyone could still shoot their parts from home and we could still have this fun adventure together. And, and now we're about to launch our first big film from that series, August 21st. And he by far had the most positive opinion of both Snow White, the character, and the film. I think Snow White often gets a um, an unfair rap compared to a lot of the princesses who we, we give a lot of, um, you know, passes for a lot of things, but Snow White as a character, I, I guess I always think to the fact that this this woman is, is hyper-sheltered, she finds out she's about to be murdered, she runs off into the woods, and she freaks out, but she talks herself down, because those animals, those animals can't talk, you know, so she talks herself down from losing her mind, you know, she's just lost everything she knows, and she basically finds a way to use her only skill <laughs> to get herself a place to stay, um, uh, you know, as a scullery maid, she's like, well, I know how to clean, so I'm going to clean my way to a new tomorrow. <laughs> that's, that's basically how I look at, I look at Snow White. Clean my way to a new tomorrow. You know what? That is easily the most generous read we've had on Snow White, and I kind of vibe with it. No, I do too. I think that's kind of great. Like, that's I, way I, better than what we said. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, I think it's easy to like to look down on her as it's like some like some weird you know waif who you know makes poor life choices by taking an apple from an obviously evil woman and <laughs> killing herself. Um, but I think that everyone, uh, I think each Disney princess, even the ones I, I dislike, that would be Ariel, um, have lessons that we could learn because they are all each of them flawed in a different way i think with our current sensitive sensibilities and, and where we are in the world right now as far as like empowerment and just awareness of how much more you can do with that kind of a story um snow white is a really easy target <laughs> like it's you know when she stands next to the other princesses there's less going uh, on with her to relate to and so i can understand how people people can kind of come down on it it's you know we're looking at it through a lens of like today as opposed to just like a you know astonishing piece of animation especially for the time you know there's sometimes where you have to be able to <laughs> i think observe something as um a product of its time and sometimes i mean like you don't let everything slide obviously we're about to get into dumbo here in a second <laughs> um because i got a lot a lot of good things and a lot a lot of uh you know narrow brow things to say about dumbo but also i do have to be able to view it as this, this is where we were um as a society and that doesn't give an excuse to any kind of like uh ignorance in any of the portrayal of any of the characters or how the story is told but um it gives a way of understanding and at least having a conversation about it as opposed to just being dismissive for the sake of this is not as enlightened as i want it to be hmm. you know kind of a deal which is the attitude the attitude that i try not to take completely <laughs>
Did you see the faucet head? I did not. Oh my gosh, Harrison. <laughs> it that either it was a fish or very racially coded, and neither of those is a gory answer. Are you looking it up? Yeah, no, the faucet at the the water pump in the in the dwarf's house at 17 minutes and 50 seconds on Disney Plus. Yikes. Told you. That is 100% a racial stereotype. Right? That is very bad. Disney. Can we also see how it's tied to domestic labor, but also like like industrial labor cuz not only is it tied to the fact that like you know, the cleaning and washing in the house, but someone has to dig the well to get the water to come out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that just, t- and then when you add the fact that they all sing whenever they work, that, yeah, th- it's that making some, a comment. <laughs> that is weird. There are weird racial implications all over this thing. And like, if you wanted to, if you want to make the stretch, like the fact that they are specific, the fact that they are dwarves and thus non-human is, um, not great either. See, I took I also, it more as like yeah. a disability thing than okay. any than yeah. like a racial thing. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Because you can go into like dopey. That's already a that's a paper I read. Yeah, <laughs> so I know the the analysis has been drawn there already. My dad particularly loves Dopey. And I don't know if actually in hindsight, I wonder if maybe Dopey is a bad representation of people with learning difficulties or something like that. I've never really given it much proper thought, but I'm assuming it probably does. If you want to get an essay on it, I can send it your way. Because Dopey in particular, he doesn't have facial hair like the other one. So as a child when I watched it it felt that he was just a little kid like it felt like he was a little baby brother mm-hmm. but then of course he's actually an old man they're all old men I've never really thought about that before it's funny Taz brought this up because I originally wasn't going to include this in the episode uh there's already scholarship out there that claims uh Walt Disney does not portray intellectual disability positively in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves um but since she brought it up I figured I'd do a quick summary of that article I just mentioned So, Diversity in Disney Films is a collection of essays by different authors. I'll refer to a couple of these essays throughout the series. The article that I'm talking about today is Dopey's Legacy, Stereotypical Portrayals of Intellectual Disability in the Classic Animated Film. So, the authors point out that characters with intellectual disability in film are represented as subhuman, uh, a character acting like a child when they biologically are not, and are often seen as the butt of the joke. Some examples they draw are when Dopey can't match the step with the other dwarves when they go marching through the forest, uh, when Dopey isn't included on the dwarves' huddles when they discuss important matters, and his constant silly blunders. Additionally, animators admitted to giving him a more dog-like mentality and mannerisms, uh, which plays into the whole subhuman artifact that the article makes. Even his name, Dopey, can be used synonymously with idiot. Um, In the end, Dopey presents intellectual disability as incompetence, which is not a holistic or even accurate portrayal of people with intellectual disabilities. So while this is one read of Dopey, 
I'd argue that the vast public has a largely positive opinion of Dopey's character and role in the film. And I think Lindsay describes it well. So Dopey. (laughs) He just, he's so innocent in a good way where he doesn't know what is socially called for in, in the film. Like he how each dwarf has their personality reflected in their name. He is happy to go along with life and just kind of live it. He, he doesn't have anything holding him back and he's just cute. So I had a weird theory that I was mulling over this morning as I was cleaning my kitchen. Funny that I was doing that while thinking about Snow White. But, because, okay, it, 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 it came to me at the end of the film because when the prince takes Snow White to his castle, it's literally just like a castle in the clouds. You don't really know where it is. It looks like it's in the middle of the sky. So my mind went, heaven. So then I came up with a theory that really Snow White died with the huntsman that happened and then the rest of the movie is her journey to purgatory slash hell and then how she got up to heaven seven dwarves seven deadly sins the house is kind of like this weird purgatory the witch as the devil comes tempts her with an apple fruit by the way forbidden fruit she eats it dies and then that makes the prince like a christ figure because he's the only one who can resurrect people. That is certainly a read. Um, I... Man, that is like some... The island was purgatory the whole time nonsense there. Like, that is, gr- that is a read. Um, Can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing. My mind went directly to the notion of, like, a, the city on the hill in terms of... Oh, yeah. Um, like Jesus used that in the Sermon on the Mount, but like in United States politics, it was like some of the some of the pilgrims left England and some of the settlers came over to in a religious sense to found a city, the city on the hill, as like a shining beacon of like uh the ideal way of living. So again, that just reinforces Snow White as the paragon of female virtue of like you lived your life like this. Uh, you're being saved from an unfair punishment. Although, I'm, you could read it as unfair, but also I wouldn't put it past uh, uh, Disney or the original Grimm's Fairy Tale people to be like, mm, don't trust strangers, don't eat their food, don't do it. But who's to say in that sense that the prince isn't a stranger? He hopped the castle wall because he heard a girl singing hopped the cat like where are aren't there guards for that kind of stuff like aren't there like like in every other like film movie tv show with a castle there's like security everywhere but like in this film nah he just hops the ball he's like oh look it's a pretty girl i'm gonna go talk to her and it's like (laughs) yeah he's also a stranger he is also a stranger yeah i don't know so then in that situation it's not necessarily don't do don't talk to strangers it's don't trust old women who aren't married yeah 
that's probably a better better interpretation. Well, not a better interpretation, but probably a more sound interpretation. Because when you were talking about, um, oh, what was it? Because you said you had class and gender, right? Those were the two things you thought of? Yeah. One of the things I thought you were going to bring up was just the fact that, like, um, the queen deciding to be a peddler woman. Yeah. And that choice. And just, you know, like, the fact that it's like, okay, then she literally goes through the instructions on how to make a peddler woman. Yeah. So really, not only, really, like... Qu- really, really quick. I... Th- this is the dumbest thing, but for some reason, I found the ingredient of mummy dust to be the funniest thing on the planet. Right? <laughs> I was like, how the heck do you get mummy dust in Germany? Like, <laughs> like, where did you get that? But also just like of all the things like mummy dust, not money paper, not mummy paper, not like a mummified bone, just mummy dust. What does that mean? <laughs> Also on a funny note, I thought it was funny that she had two separate books for black arts and black magic. <laughs> I was like, wait, they're, they're different? Yeah, black arts is like evil origami. <laughs> I'm going to fold a crane and it'll put a curse on you. <laughs> Anyone who touches my folded crane turns into a crane. Evil paper craft. I love it. Evil watercolor paints. Yep. So, um, uh, but no, okay, but kind of going back to that, the mummy dust and everything, she goes step by step into how to make, um, like, an old woman, okay, and it's like, mummy dust, there was um, the black of night, so that it, like, shrouds her, um, she wanted an old hag's cackle, um, you know, so all these things, and I thought two things with that, like, I guess the one thing that's, like, really prevalent is, like, this is how you become invisible, to society is you become an old unmarried woman that's how she was able to get away with it not only but also she is like a very wealthy queen who is literally like putting on the clothes of the poor people to like get her you know to do that so like again poor people aren't you know are also hidden you know they're they're not seen per se or and also like using that like to her advantage has an interesting connotation to it as well like she is not um i'm trying to figure out how to word this she gets to go like she dies spoiler alert she dies but um in case anyone didn't know but like if she were to live at the end of the day she just goes back to her castle she makes another potion her life's the same yeah yeah, it's the idea that, like, the wealthy can masquerade as the lower class without any of the issues that, without any of the lifestyle issues that plague that kind of existence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, don't trust the poor, don't trust the elderly, don't trust single women. Well, single Disney women says they're the, bad at Well, the single women are the worst. Honestly, you can't control them. They don't have a man to tell them not to do that. Right. They also don't have domestic work to keep them occupied so that they don't have to... That's probably another reason. The queen, because she's rich, she probably didn't have to clean a chimney in her life. So she has all this free time. And what do women do with their free time? They study black arts and black magic. And stare in mirrors. 
stare she's at themselves vain. in mirrors. She's she vain. extremely vain. Which is like, obviously a woman can't know she looks good. They she just has have to, to be unassuming. Uh-huh. They have to be pure as undriven snow. Which then, I guess, when you put that into con, it makes my statement from 30 minutes ago not as strong. Because I guess if you're trying to draw the queen and Snow White as foils. Yeah. Snow White can't know that she has beauty. She can't know that she, you know, has those attributes that makes her more desirable. It is a less... It's a more it's a toned down version of the virgin whore complex, right? Where like you have to be sexual, but you also have to be super pure, but you can't be both. And the fact that we have like the mirror stating it at the beginning that she's like the most beautiful person on earth, like makes her essentially the platonic ideal of a woman. Because you don't have anybody any humans polluting that idea no human stated it at the beginning it was a it was a mirror that tells the objective truth which whatever who was also a man so since a man said it mm-hmm. you or know someone it's true. coded as a man hmm? mm-hmm. you know it's true exactly yeah well that's all we got for this week you can find me on twitter at alex underscore isaac and on instagram at alex isaac underscore you can find me on Twitter at play underscore champion. You can also follow the show at dream deeper pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dream a little deeper pod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests for taking the time to talk to us. You heard a lot of different voices today in those compilations and we didn't feature everyone today, but we will soon. You can follow Olivia at Livy Fitzgerald on Instagram. You can follow Lindsay B at AnimeQueen95 on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Kaylee at Kaylee underscore Spiel on Instagram. You can follow Tasman's book blog at Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can find her poetry page at Tasman May Poetry. You can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Kruzniak. You can find SC on Facebook at SC King Official. And you can watch 300 Days to Mars Zero Gravity on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time for our discussion of Pinocchio. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers. <laughs>